A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how that powerful idea shapes America. Feeling slightly short, I'm standing next to a life-size bronze statue of Abraham Lincoln. He who's about half a head taller than me, and I don't generally think of myself as a short person. He is greeting a bronze woman, Mary Lincoln, his wife, who is much, much shorter than he is. And next to him is their little boy, Willie, who died during the Civil War. I'm, I'm in Springfield, Illinois, the state capital, and standing in front of the old state capital building. And it was here in June 1858 that Abraham Lincoln, a well-known figure around here, his law offices are over to my left. He'd been a member of this state legislature here for uh, many years. It was here that Lincoln gave a speech in which he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. It was one of his most famous speeches. It was also one of his most consequential. And I've come here today to find out more about that speech, why he gave it, and why it mattered. My name is Justin Blanford, and I serve as the superintendent for historic sites in Springfield, which includes the old state capitol, as well as the Lincoln tomb. I'm here with Justin in the House of Representatives of the old state capitol building. It's a beautiful room, a semicircle of uh, wooden desks facing uh, a dais, two levels, and behind the dais is a portrait of George Washington, an American flag, a beautifully proportioned classical room. Would it have looked like this in 1858? I mean, it's, it's beautifully set out. There are, there, are, there are quill pens on the desk and oil lamps and candles. Um, would it have looked pretty much like this in terms of the kind of furniture and the fittings, do you think? Yes, it, it would have. It would have looked um, a little dirtier. Smoke, you know, would have, you know, infiltrated the spaces all throughout the year for a variety of reasons. You, you mentioned the oil lamps, candles, oh, soot from the stove. There's spittoons, you know, laced throughout the, the floor. We, we can't assume everyone was a good shot, so the <laughs> floors would be dirty. Um, you know, but it was still a space that they were very proud of and a, a distinguished space nonetheless. Now, Justin, we've got here, you've shared with me this um, amazing piece of paper um, that was drawn. You call it a memory map, right? So mm-hmm. it, was, it was drawn by somebody who was probably, we, we think, must have been here on the day in, on June the 16th, 1858, Drawn by Clinton Conkling, um, a friend of, of Robert Lincoln's. There's literally an X here. He X marks, marks the spot. X in front of the dais. And, and that's where Lincoln was. So can we, let's see if we can work us. out where that was. So where do you think it was then? So was it here or was it? right about here. So I'm standing now literally where Abraham Lincoln stood on the 16th of June, 1858 probably looking up at the galleries as I'm doing now, a thousand people in front of him jammed together, hot June uh, evening. And he gave this 
momentous, hugely consequential speech. Mr. President and gentlemen of the convention, if we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, we could then better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And I'm joined now by Christian McWhirter, who's the Lincoln historian at the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum, and by Graham Peck, distinguished professor of Lincoln studies at the University of Illinois, Springfield, both of them experts on the Civil War era. Graham and Christian, thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. Let's just begin by trying to understand who this guy was, Abraham Lincoln. 1858. He was born in 1809. Graham, you're the Lincoln Studies professor in Lincoln's hometown of Springfield. Give us a quick capsule description of who Lincoln was. So Lincoln had been born in a frontier environment in Kentucky, spent the first 20 years in Kentucky and Indiana. He comes to Illinois and he quickly settles in a small commercial town called New Salem, He sort of left his family behind, hasn't he? Yes, he leaves his family behind. His father was a farmer, remained a farmer his whole life. But Lincoln has his eyes set on a very different future, and he finds the beginnings of that future in New Salem, the small town that's about 20 minutes from Springfield by car. And he tries many different careers, you know, does postmastering, he does surveying, he, uh, he of course works in occasionally for people uh, in various capacities to earn money on the side. Uh, shopkeeper he, for a while. He's a failed shopkeeper. And yes, so he ultimately begins a career in law and a career in politics, and that's going to be the future that will bring him to Springfield. When he enters Springfield, he's coming to be a lawyer. And so his career in Springfield was quite different. He was Abe in New Salem, and he was Mr. Lincoln, a respectable middle-class rising man in Springfield. And so by the time we see him in 1858, he is a leading figure in not only the city and the region, but the state. And he will be ready to compete on the national stage with Senator Stephen A. Douglas, a long-term rival whose career had been meteoric. They both had entered the state legislature at roughly the same time in the middle 1830s, but Douglas's career had taken off, fueled by the Democratic Party in Illinois, which was very powerful, and it elevated him quickly, not only into Congress, but into the United States Senate. So that, that was the challenge for Lincoln in 1858, was finding a way to topple his great rival in service of a new political party, the Republican Party that he had helped found in the state in the 1850s. Christian. So, so as Graham mentioned, Lincoln grows up on the frontier, right? The edges of, of white colonialism. And therefore, Lincoln does not have access to 
schooling or anything like that. Lincoln spends less than one year uh, getting a formal education. Uh, Lincoln will later call that education defective, so it's essentially moot. And so Lincoln is um, all these things that Graham talked about, these different careers that Lincoln is trying, including the law. Lincoln is learning these things on his own. Um, so for a white man... Right. This was a very open society in many ways then, wasn't it? I mean, he, he could become a lawyer in Illinois, in frontier Illinois, in the 1830s and 40s without going to a university, without going to law school. He just read law with a senior lawyer. He just kind of did it himself. He was, it was a society that was open to somebody like him. Very, yes. I mean, you, you, you really couldn't do that today. That being said, some of Lincoln's contemporaries or many of his contemporaries in the law field do go to college and get law degrees. They go study law. Lincoln doesn't do that. Um, Lincoln, because he can. <laughs> so, I mean, there is something still exceptional about what Lincoln is able to do. But what that creates in Lincoln then is this commitment to opportunity and the ability to rise in American society. And this is fundamental to Lincoln's politics, and it's fundamental to Republican politics, which is partly what he's talking about in the House Divide speech in 1858. So let's let's come back to the to the situation in, in 1858 then. As Graham, as you were you were kind of uh, sketching this out, Lincoln politics is part of the way in which he wants to make his way in the world. He's a member of the Whig Party, which is different from the Whig Party of 18th and early 19th century Britain, the American Whig Party. Um, but this is a democratic state. So, you know, the main reason why his his contemporary, near contemporary Stephen Douglas has a meteoric career and Lincoln doesn't is because Douglas is on the winning side. He's in the majority party. So he's able to reach the United States Senate at a, at a very young age when those kinds of options are largely closed off to someone who's in the minority party. But by 1858... There have been political earthquakes, haven't there? And all of a sudden, Lincoln's old party, the Whig Party, has kind of disappeared. But this new party has emerged. And a lot of the old Whigs and some of the old Democrats have joined this new Republican Party. What animated the Republican Party? What led people into the Republican Party in 1858? What was driving them? So I would argue that there was a commitment to a national future of freedom. And there was a corresponding fear that slavery threatened that future. And the central reasons for that fear were the belief that the Southern slaveocracy, the slaveholders, were taking control of the federal government and trying to at least equate slavery and freedom and arguably make slavery universal in the nation. And this led to many contests, particularly in the 1840s and 1850s over national politics that give rise to the Republican Party. And I think I would add to that that the spark that starts the the kind of collapsing Whig Party, right, to coalesce into the Nassau Republican Party is the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act, which Douglas sponsors, which is a key component of what Lincoln is talking about in this speech. So... Stephen Douglas, local boy, where well, he was born in Vermont, I think, but, you know, made his career like Lincoln made his career. Lincoln was born in Kentucky, but both of them made their career in Illinois. Uh, Douglas is playing this, he's a little guy, but he's playing an outsized role on the national political stage. He is one of the key figures pushing through this bill in 1854, Christian, that you've just referred to, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which opens up, which organizes a whole area of territory in the West, Kansas and Nebraska, 
and says that slavery could exist there if the people in the local areas want to have it. And for people like Lincoln, this is outrageous, not just because it allows the possibility of slavery, which they believe is contrary to all of their values and is in itself abhorrent. Lincoln later says, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. I do not remember when I did not so think and feel. So slavery is wrong, wrong. But the Kansas and Nebraska Act also opens up an area to slavery, which everybody, like people like Lincoln anyway, had always understood from which slavery was going to be forever prohibited. So the Kansas and Nebraska Act was a kind of sacrilegious thing as well. It was breaking a sacred pledge. So this was kind of an outrageous thing, wasn't it? It was an outrageous thing. And then the Supreme Court not only backs up the Kansas-Nebraska Act, but goes even further than that and says that retrospectively, the Act of Congress, the previous Act of Congress, which had previously prohibited slavery from this area, was itself unconstitutional because what the Supreme Court is beginning to say is that it's probably unconstitutional for Congress, for any legislative body backed up by Congress, to ban slavery because if slaves, if enslaved people are property, then to remove them is to violate the property rights of the person who claims to own that human being. And that's pretty shocking stuff, isn't it, Graham? Well, what Chief Justice Roger Taney said in the Dred Scott decision which was released in early 1857, just after James Buchanan had been elected president as a Democrat, was uh, two major things, one of which you're touching on, which was the status of slavery in the territories and Congress's power over it. And the court says that the Constitution had expressly recognized property in man, which was false. But Tawney says this, and he follows this then by saying, since the Constitution has expressly recognized it, the territories were the shared territories of all citizens of the United States, and Congress could not discriminate against any member of the country from taking their property into those territories. So that was his exact reasoning. And this reasoning essentially was very similar to what John C. Calhoun, the famous senator from South Carolina, mm. had been arguing in the 1840s. So this was indeed a huge step that seemed to be taking the country's institutions into the southern interpretation of what the nation was and what the country was. Right, so kind of nationalizing slavery, yes. potentially. Yes, and it was hard to see a way around that logic. Yeah. If you accepted the proposition that yeah. the Constitution had expressly recognized property rights, right. which Lincoln repudiated entirely right. and said right. this was historically false. So I think these are the things that we need to know then in order to, then to, to understand why Lincoln says what he does. So, Well, there's one more thing, which is then what do Republicans want? So Republicans want the opposite. So Republicans are a loose coalition who are opposed to this idea of slavery expanding, but at minimum what they want is to cordon off slavery within the Deep South in the hope that it will eventually die there. So not only do they disagree with this interpretation of the Constitution, what's happening is directly in opposition to what they want. And so here's where you have the House divided, right? Right. You have both sides with very polarized goals. right. So June 1858, the Illinois Republican Party meets in convention in the old state house uh, where we've just been, nominates Lincoln, and Lincoln gives 
this speech. So let's just let's spend a few minutes, Christian and Graham, just looking at the speech. Graham, I mean, let's look at this line. We're now far into the fifth year. This is just his second sentence. We're now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Uh, under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. So the fifth year of that policy, what, what, I mean, what's he talking about there? The Kansas-Nebraska Act right. from 1854, uh, which struck down the Missouri Compromise's prohibition on slavery in the Louisiana Purchase Territories north of 3630. So he's directly, and everybody knows, author of this act is Stephen Douglas, big Illinois local rival in the Democratic Party. What he's referring to, the avowed object, the confident promise, he's saying in this kind of sort of mocking way, I guess, isn't he, of putting an end to slavery agitation. That was the promise. And that was, he's right, isn't it? That was the promise. You know, Douglas said, look, this is a very American solution okay so we've got anti-slavery people we've got pro-slavery people um let's just let the people decide his policy he called popular sovereignty what could be possibly be more american than that let the people decide that will solve the problem that's what douglas said and lincoln is saying okay that's what he said he says this policy is going to solve the problem let's look at what's actually happened so Lincoln then goes on to say, under the operation of that policy, that agitation had only not ceased, but constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. So this isn't going anywhere. And then he comes to this famous line, a house divided against itself shall not stand, which is from Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, although I think the same phrase uh, also appears in Mark and Luke in the um, King James version, Graham. Um, what does that? What does he mean? I mean, what does he? Can you just gloss that line for us? A house divided against itself cannot stand. Well, I think what he's trying to do is to create a duality, an opposition between the Republican anti-slavery position and the Southern pro-slavery position and to strike out any middle ground that Stephen Douglas can stand upon. And this biblical metaphor is extremely well-known in a United States that's got an enormously strong evangelical Protestant movement, especially in the North, and that evangelical movement has infused abolitionism, and it's infused the newfound Republican Party. So many voters, especially Lincoln's voters, are familiar with this language, intimately familiar with it. And so it provides a kind of sacred character to the debate over the nation's future. And it also, perhaps more importantly, is simply very accessible, right? It's an analogy that people can use to understand the political predicament. Twice in this introduction... Um, that quote and then the uh, the whither, if we know where we are and whither we are tending, those both those things are, are phrases that Daniel Webster had used. So one thing Lincoln is doing is tying himself to one of the political heroes of the probably most people who are reading the speech, Daniel Webster. The other thing about that, um, the biblical quote too, is the, the within the Bible, the, the context of that quote 
Jesus is telling the Pharisees um, that they can't use evil means to accomplish good ends. And one of the contexts for the speech that we'll talk about is that some of the Republicans in the room with him want to lure Douglas into the Republican Party. And so I think Lincoln is also making that connection because they would have been much very aware of the context of that biblical sentence that Douglas is an evil means to achieve good end. Mm. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation is the quote from Matthew. Uh, And Lincoln goes on to say, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I don't expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. Um, I mean, Douglas would say, Graham, I know you've, you've written and thought a lot about Stephen Douglas as well as about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, wouldn't Douglas say, well, why can't, can't the government? The government has endured half slave and half free for 70 years. Uh, so what's the problem? There's no question that Douglas has a different opinion on this subject. He thinks, as you have suggested, that Lincoln and the Republicans are the problem. If you refuse to permit slavery to continue its existence, then yes, there will be a house divided. But if you go along with what we've had all along, which is a divided country from its inception, then why can't we continue that? And Douglas will say this in the debate subsequently. Later in the debates, he says, our fathers made this government half slave and half free, and it can continue forever like this if we will simply... We will just calm down. Yes, if, and if we'll follow a policy, popular sovereignty, that permits us to divide up the nation mm. as people living where they live, mm. you know, choose mm. as, the, as, mm. as they think is best where they live, which is why he thought in 1854 that the Kansas-Nebraska Act would allow the slavery issue to be resolved because he said the problem is that we're debating it in Congress. If we let people where they live in the territories and states choose whether or not to have slavery, that's a decision that's local. It won't disturb anyone else, and it won't turn the nation against itself. So Douglas never steps back from that position in the debates. He says slavery is not wrong. My policy doesn't recognize that slavery is wrong or right. It lets people choose as they see fit wherever they live. And then lastly, the country under those conditions can can last forever. Lincoln says exactly the opposite. Slavery is wrong. My policy and the Republican Party policy recognizes the wrong by forbidding slavery from going into the territories and thus expanding the wrong. And we do this with the desire in mind of ultimate extinction, which he says in this House Divided speech. So we are going to put an end to the wrong. So there is this pronounced division or between the two. Ultimately. Ultimately. We will, we will at least ensure that the nation establishes as the prince freedom as the norm and slavery as the exception. And his language is that we will put the public mind in the belief that slavery is going to On be eliminated. On the path to the u- yes. ultimate extinction, so is which is a phrase he uses many times in these, in these mm-hmm. years. Sometimes when people invoke the speech, a house divided against itself. I, I, I think maybe Obama did this, right? What, what they think, what people think Lincoln was saying was a kind of let's all come together, right? But it sounds like from what you're saying, Graham, he's not saying that at all. This is, this is a rallying cry. Yes, thank you so much for saying that. Because as someone who works in a Lincoln Museum, I'm often um, 
that that narrative walks in the door a lot where Lincoln is this peacemaker figure who's who's preoccupied with unity with unity and all these things and certainly Lincoln restores the union but if you look at this speech, the first inaugural is often brought up in that same sense you just said. The second inaugural, especially, everybody reads with malice toward none and ignores the rest of that speech. Certainly, Lincoln is about unity and Lincoln is about preserving the union, but he's about preserving the union under certain terms. His, terms. his vision, right? right. The, his vision and the Republican vision of what the, the, a unified nation should look like. You know, we, we obviously look back on this speech in part because Lincoln went on to become president in 1860 and his election as president triggered the secession of southern slave states and that in turn triggered the Civil War. But even if Lincoln hadn't gone off on that trajectory, I mean, at the time, how did this speech go down? I mean, it sounds like this is pretty radical stuff. Well, is I, that how people reacted? To and it? I'd like to, I'd like Graham to actually carry this because I know one person who reacted precisely the way we're talking about is Stephen Douglas. Stephen Douglas saw this as a call to, for civil war, right? Well, he said as much. I think it'd be more accurate to say he saw this as a fantastic political opportunity <laughs> to jump on Lincoln and to associate Lincoln with the abolitionist radicals who'd been denouncing the South in unmeasured terms, and some of whom, years before especially Garrison, had denounced the Constitution as a covenant with death, a pact with hell. And so to be able to take Lincoln and and conflate Lincoln with the abolitionists was his opportunity, whereas what Lincoln was trying to do was to take Douglas and conflate Douglas with the pro-slavery Southerners. So they were both attempting to position their opponents in the least unfavorable light in front of the Northern electorate. And the gamble that Lincoln took was that in trying to position Douglas with the slaveholders, he himself could be positioned with the abolitionists. And you are exactly right. Douglas will, will grab that like a bull terrier and he will never let go. <laughs> and that's essentially what the debates are, is them debating exactly those two positions then, right, throughout the election. So it's relevant for us to remind ourselves then that Lincoln was giving this speech to Republicans. This was not a speech in which he was trying to persuade wavering voters. This was a call to arms to, his, to the party faithful who had just nominated him as their candidate for United States uh, senator. Yes, and these ideas aren't original to Lincoln. This idea that there's a slaveocracy and that, um, you know, they've been conspiring since 1854 to create a unified pro-slavery nation is an idea that's out there that Lincoln right. is borrowing from right. in this speech. You, you just use the word conspire there, Christian. I mean, this is a conspiracy theory speech. That doesn't mean that he's wrong that there was a conspiracy, but he's sure. laying out a conspiracy theory here, isn't he? Uh, I mean, he, he, he goes on after the, the famous line about a house divided against itself cannot stand to lay out the evidence that there is a concerted secret plot involving northern leaders of the Democratic Party like Stephen A. Douglas, who we've been talking about, with members of the Supreme Court and southern political leaders, pro-slavery political leaders, slaveocrats, to fundamentally change the basis of the American Republic, to tip it in favor of, sla of slavery and against, and against freedom. That, it's a conspiracy theory, isn't it, Graham? Yes. So let's back up a little to, I think, something that Christian had said earlier. This fear that perhaps Republicans might try to bring Stephen Douglas into the Republican Party. 
we need to have some background to understand why that would even be remotely possible. And the reason is that Douglas had just fought the Southerners for the first time in his career, really, in Congress to defeat the Lecompton Constitution, which was a pro-slavery constitution produced by settlers in Kansas territory, which, of course, had been organized under the Kansas-Nebraska So basically, Douglas thinks that his popular sovereignty idea doesn't seem to be working out so well, and he suddenly realizes actually a whole bunch of pro-slavery people are pouring into Kansas, um, have written a constitution which probably doesn't represent the will of the majority of the settlers in Kansas, and so Douglas is crying foul, and he's saying this isn't real popular sovereignty, this is corrupted popular sovereignty, and so he's breaking with the southern wing of the Democratic Party. Yes, although I think you understate the degree of problems that existed in Kansas. So Kansas is kind of remarkable because there is essentially an invasion of Kansas by Missourians early on in the territorial process. Missouri being a slave state. uh, Yes, that's correct. And they take control of the state legislature. They pass pro-slavery laws. They are very hostile to anti-slavery settlers. And this creates a huge motive for anti-slavery settlers to deliberately settle Kansas in order to save it from slavery, and there had already been ideas of that expressed during the debates in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, so it didn't even require the Missourians to, to get that in motion, but they supercharge it once the Northerners say, wow, we've barely legalized the territorial government and the slave, the slave owners are immediately trying to destroy democracy there after saying that we'd have a, a vote on whether slavery or freedom should predominate. So you get a outpouring of Northerners who go into Kansas and they set up a free state government. So you have competing governments and that descends into bloodshed. Yeah. Bleeding Kansas. They're literally yes. killing each other. Right. In 1856, you have, uh, you know, the sacking of Lawrence, Kansas by the pro-slavery side. You have a denunciation in Congress by Charles Sumner of the, of the crime in Kansas. He angers Southern politicians. He is ruthlessly beaten, uh, you, you know, severely injured. Uh, he's out of Congress for years. There's no free speech in, in Congress, according to uh, the Northerners who are outraged by this conduct, who see the dominance of the slavocrats not only in the territories, but now also in the sacred halls of democracy. And this fuels the idea that the nation's democratic heritage and idea of freedom is directly under threat. So it's under these difficult conditions that Douglas, only at the very end, chooses to fight against the Lecompton Constitution. And so he does do it, but his argument is even then... He simply objects to the nature of the vote in Kansas. He has no objection to slavery in Kansas if the territorial settlers want it. So this is the the opening for Lincoln to say, Douglas is still not with us. And if we put him in our party, he will destroy our party because he doesn't believe slavery is wrong, he doesn't believe in excluding it from the territories, and he doesn't want it extinguished... (laughs) He's, but he nevertheless, says that's not he, but Lincoln has to take this line because there are Republicans, especially back east, who are saying, look, pragmatically, guys, we've got to build a coalition of everybody who in practice is now opposed to these pro-slavery forces on the ground in Kansas. And that would include 
Douglas Christian. Right, and, and and absolutely. And and like Graham said, I mean the only argument Douglas is making is you're you're doing popular sovereignty wrong. Right. He's not saying anything more than that. And I and I want to really emphasize because I think it is it's we were mentioning earlier about Lincoln's legacy and the way that some of these some of the things Lincoln does have gotten simplified through not through memory. And and that context for the speech, the 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 Douglas, the courting of Douglas is such an important context for the speech that's largely forgotten. Because part of what Lincoln is doing in this speech is is he's pointing out, yeah, sure, he's pointing out that there's this slaveocracy and all these kind of things, but he's also saying, guys, Douglas was the problem all along. How can you be courting Douglas? The whole reason our party even exists is to go after this guy, right? So you cannot ally with this guy. He's the problem, right? You got to stick with me, stick with Republicans like me, get Douglas out of here, right? It's Adam Smith here, and I wanted to tell you about another podcast which I'm enjoying at the moment. We're currently facing one of the most challenging moments in human history. Our governments are under increasing pressure to bring about the results people expect while remaining trusted and relevant. And yet the systems and structures and processes of government today are often not set up to respond to the complex challenges we face as a society. And so that's where the Reimagining Government podcast comes in. It's a new podcast from the Centre of Public Impact and Apolitical, which explores radical new approaches to addressing the most pressing issues of our time. And so from the climate crisis to equitable healthcare provision and how to rebuild trust with marginalised communities, the Reimagining Government podcast will help you to explore today's most urgent global issues. So don't miss out. Follow the Reimagining Government podcast wherever you get your podcasts and tell them that The Last Best Hope podcast sent you. I want to jump forward um, a century to the occasion when the uh, Willy Brandt, who was then the mayor of Berlin, visits Springfield, Illinois, where we are sitting today recording this conversation. He comes here and he gives a, a speech standing in front of a banner which says a house divided against itself cannot stand. And, of course, he is the mayor of West Berlin, a divided city at the height of the Cold War. So the, the phrase, a house divided against itself, and its association with Lincoln still resonating at that point 100 years later. I mean, Christian here in this... Um, Museum where we're we're sitting now, the the, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential uh, Library and Museum. I mean, you you have artifacts here, you have collections about the the legacy of Lincoln, don't you? I wonder if you have any thoughts about how the the speech has kind of echoed down the generations. Well, we spent a lot of time here talking about context, and I think in part we've done that because, yeah, as we've mentioned a little bit earlier, in in national and you're right, international memory. Um, the speech has lost a lot of its context. And I think that house divided phrase has been mobilized a lot. Um, and often it's mobilized as Lincoln calling for unity, that it's Lincoln saying, oh no, <laughs> this house is divided, so we'd better unify it. And I think that's partly what he means, but as we mentioned earlier, what he's actually doing is predicting a crisis. He's saying, we've reached a crisis point in this nation, and that crisis is going to resolve this conflict. So sure, he's calling for unity, but he's also predicting something awful is about to happen, and we have to try to weather it, and we've got to stay our course and so, as Christian, you're saying that that sense of the speech has been largely forgotten. I, I think so. And Barack Obama came here to announce his 
run for the presidency, he stood on the steps of the old Capitol building and he talked about a house divided against itself on its stand. And this was the Barack Obama who was most best known at that point for his 2004 Democratic Convention speech in which he said there are no blue states, there are no red states, there is just the United States of America. Some would say that Obama's presidency kind of demonstrated the limits of the strategy of saying that there was no blue America, no red America, only the United States of America. What do you, what do you think, Graham, as, as the distinguished professor of Lincoln studies? Have, 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 the, have the present day interpreters of Lincoln got him wrong? Well, I'm more interested in our immediate political context. Right now, we are closer to having a house divided than I think we have been since the Civil War. And we're facing up with the exact same problem, which is that if the house is so divided that one side in a losing election will not accept the result, then democracy breaks down And the only resort, as Lincoln said, is to force. And that happened in the Civil War. There was not an attempt to overthrow the election results in the same way with an insurrection to take over the presidency. But there was a massive attempt to overthrow the power of the federal government over the states that chose to secede when they established their own government. So effectively, it was the same logic behind their decision, that they did not accept that these election returns should create leadership that would control their futures. And we're facing that challenge to a degree now. And just as Lincoln in in 1858 was uncertain of what the future would hold, so are we. It's interesting because we could create an analogy if we were to imagine it was 2024 And a new party has arisen, called the Republican Party, uh, to to challenge the Republican Party, or maybe to take control of the Republican Party. Maybe the challenge arises within the Republican Party. And a speaker says there's been a conspiracy. And there's a man named Trump, who we've seen him working with the Russians. And the Russians then invaded our political system and put him into power. And then he's aided them and abetted them in a variety of ways. And then he tried to overthrow the government, and we can trace the ways he's done that. And he's still here. He's trying to maintain his power over this Republican Party, and we need to take it back. We need him to be excluded. Would we, those who don't like Trump, I would include myself in that group, would we want an outstanding rhetorician who might draw those lines so clearly that enough Republicans would peel off and enough figures from the Democratic Party would peel off and enough new voters would come into the party, enough immigrants would come into the party. All those things happened to Lincoln in the 1850s. That was his coalition. That 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 new person would be able to win that rhetorical debate and extrude Trump from politics, which is what Lincoln was trying to do by defeating Douglas, push him out of the Senate, destroy his political power in the North. So if we look at Lincoln in that regard, he was recognizing a crisis point that he thought democracy was in jeopardy. And it's easy to look back and criticize and say we ended up having the Civil War. But you know, the same thing could happen to us. We have no guarantees that any decision we make can avert a civil war. The decisions we may make that we think will avert it may produce it. This is the reality of of any person acting in history. And I think we need to recognize that with humility as historians. And, and of course, the idea of 
conspiracy theories motivating the two-party American system is nothing new either, right? It's a fundamental part of American political culture. And I'm not saying, as we were saying earlier about Lincoln's conspiracy theory, I'm not saying they're always wrong or they're always right, but it's absolutely a thing that's always been a part of American political culture. And Lincoln is, is participating in it here, and we're certainly seeing it in spades right now, as Graham just said. Have we lost the possibility of language being able to make a, a difference, do you think? I mean, is it, is it possible to imagine, I mean, I'm not asking you to kind of name names necessarily of possible American politicians who could give great speeches. Could you imagine anybody being able to craft a speech which could change the political direction of the country insofar as Lincoln's speeches, we, we, not just in retrospect, but at the time Lincoln's speeches had impact? Because, as you said earlier, Christian, he wasn't, thinking new thoughts, but he was able to condense them. I'll go first. You want me to go first? <laughs> My fear is that our political culture is different. That was an age of speech making. Right. And so people came to listen to the speeches. The speeches were of a far higher intellectual level. They would last for hours. They were dense in argument. And even though there was much less public education and university education, the fact is most voters, I think, were more able to comprehend and debate those speeches than is the case today. I, I, I'm saddened to say that, but I believe that is true. What have we replaced speech-making with? Probably, as Donald Trump's presidency showed, the main message of, the main tool of, of communication is Twitter. Uh, you know, social media, where, where that is a form that is not oriented towards argumentation. It is oriented merely to claims-making. And I believe that it is doing tremendous damage to democracy because it doesn't permit an actual engagement with arguments to work through uh, ideas you know, to, to the degree uh, that I, I think was possible in the past. That being said, we, we still, I think, can't put too much faith in, in argumentation or rationality generally. Lincoln made great speeches. They still had a civil war. That's that last point's a good point. I mean, and Graham, I, were, I think we were going to make the same point. What I, the the 19th century context I wanted to bring up, you know, I'm I'm a cultural historian is is you know what I actually do when I'm not a public historian here. And um, the 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 culture of the mid 19th century was built around newspapers and political speeches. They didn't have TV. They didn't have sports. It was in a lot of ways their entertainment. And so people would go to see these speeches because it was a way that, you know, and they would root for their candidates the way that, you know, we root for, you know, our favorite soccer team or, uh, or, you know, football team or whatever today. And, um, and the other thing they would do is they would read them in newspapers. And I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier about this speech, but one of the things Lincoln was the master of was giving speeches that could fit on a, a single page or sometimes even a single column, like the Gettysburg Address, um, of a newspaper. And then people would digest those, and he could pack a lot of ideas into a short speech. And the House Divided speech, you know, Graham mentioned people would sit there and listen to speeches for hours. He's right. This speech was less than 30 minutes, and we're still talking about it. Um, and that's partly because of the circumstances it was delivered, but it's also partly because Lincoln wants this speech in the newspaper. One thing we know about this speech is after Lincoln gives it, he gets um, the reporter who's there to show him it, and he edits what's going to go in the newspaper. He wants it to be precisely 
to read what he wants when it gets mm-hmm. published the next day. And we, mm-hmm. and that culture has been lost now. We, we don't do that anymore. I, mm-hmm. I can't remember even, I can't, you know, I, I'm interested in politics. I can't remember the last time I sat down and read a current politician's mm-hmm. speech mm-hmm. Um, start to finish the day after it was given. So the American House today is divided against itself. But not only is there no Lincoln, but there's no possibility of the path to leadership for somebody like Lincoln who based his political career on making and crafting arguments. It's rather a pessimistic way to end, isn't it? I would like to be wrong, and (laughs) maybe I am wrong. But I say that simply because I look at contemporary American politics and I find that many of the politicians who are taking office are saying absurd things. There's one in central Illinois who went to Washington in her first term just a few years ago, and her first speech, given outside the Capitol, said that Adolf Hitler had good ideas for educating children. Well, if you know anything about what Adolf Hitler did with young people, it's a terrifying story. It's a story of fascism and indoctrination that helped contribute to the Holocaust. The fact that we'd have an elected representative who's completely ignorant come and say that in her first speech tells me that we are in a political environment where there is not a great deal of value placed on highly educated and intelligent people entering the political system, and it worries me. And she's not alone. That's one example. There's actually many others. And I, I, One thing I would add, though, um, although this isn't going to come out any more optimistic, but the um, oratory does still matter. Um, the, the previous two presidents of the United States, I don't think Biden qualifies, but Donald Trump and Barack Obama, part of what allowed them to reach the presidency was their skill as orators. People would go to see them speak. Obama would get these huge crowds. Donald Trump still is able to tour around and get people to come to these stadiums and hear him speak. Um, But he's not an orator, in fact. That's exactly my point. I'm not saying people won't listen to people like this. Sure. But that's not what he's doing. If if you ever watch him speak, it's a disgrace. But I'm just saying that the (laughs) idea of a charismatic leader who goes out and gets people to listen to them is still a thing. They're not only communicating through social media, but that, to what end is the problem. Yeah. That's demagoguery. I'm right. not at all denying that we have demagogues. I'm saying mm. that we have too easy a path for demagogues. Mm. I was speaking there to Graham Peck, Distinguished Professor of Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois Springfield, and Christian McWhorter, the Lincoln historian at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum, where we recorded that conversation. My thanks to Christian and the staff there, as well as to Justin Blanford and his staff at the Old State Capitol. In the final analysis, Lincoln's problem with a divided house was not just that it could not stand, but his fear that the resolution might be the opposite of what he wanted, that instead of becoming all free, the nation would become all slave. That mattered because all his faith was invested in the idea that the US was the last best hope of Earth. This was one of many battles for the nation's soul, made intense by the conviction that it mattered to the whole world. And this has been the Last Best Hope podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive rating wherever you get your podcasts. The producer was Emily Williams, and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>